Ephesians chapter 2. We may be running into um, a pleasant problem this morning of running out of chairs. And so, Brad, I'm just going to ask that you, you keep an eye on the chair situation should more come. Uh, we can always run and grab more chairs to make room. Ephesians chapter 2, and this morning we want to read verses 11 through 18. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 18. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Let's pray together once again. Holy Spirit, living breath of God, breathe new life into our willing souls. We pray that you would bring the presence of the risen Lord to renew our hearts and make us whole. Cause your word to come alive in us and give us faith for what we cannot see. Give us passion for your purity. Holy Spirit, breathe new life in us. Amen. Well, for the benefit of those who are visiting with us, we have been in a series in the book of Ephesians since the early summer with periodic breaks in between the series. And this morning we come to the middle of chapter 2. But before we come to these verses in verses 11 through 18, I want to briefly review where we've been over the past number of weeks. We have said that the message of the book of Ephesians is this, if we had to sum it up in one sentence, what do we understand to be the message of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians? It is this, that God has begun and is perfecting a cosmic work of reconciliation in Christ. God has begun and is perfecting a cosmic work of reconciliation in Christ. And we're drawing that idea out of Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 9 through 10. If you just want to flip over there briefly, uh, there it says that God made known to us, verse 9, the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. And here it is to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. To summarize, God has begun and is perfecting a cosmic work that is in heaven and in earth, a cosmic work of reconciliation. In Christ, God is uniting all things in the Lord Jesus, things in heaven, things on earth. And this 
great work of reconciliation, this great work of uniting all things in Christ, it comprehends a great deal in the book of Ephesians. It comprehends the salvation of individual people. And we've been considering that over the last several weeks. These sinners who were dead in their trespasses and sins, God in Christ has made them alive and seated them with Christ and forgiven them of all their sins. God saves individuals and breaks in with power and gives them new life. But this idea of reconciling all things in Christ, uniting all things in the Lord Jesus, doesn't just have a a vertical component of of redeemed sinner to God. But we're going to see in chapter 2, verse 11, really on through to chapter 4, verse 16, this great cosmic work of reconciliation comprehends a horizontal component. And that is the creation of a new community in Christ Jesus, a new people, one new humanity. See, when God saves a man or a woman or a boy or a girl, he doesn't just save them to themselves. But wonderfully, it's one of the best things about the Christian life. When God saves an individual, he introduces them into a new community, a new humanity, a group of creatures made new in Christ who are to be one body and one family, united in the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. But it doesn't stop there for Paul in this great work of reconciliation. We're going to see later that it also comprehends the inauguration of a new moral order, new uh, moral precepts by which God's people ought to live so that those who are living in sin formally, following the course of this world without hope and without God, now they're brought into the church, now they're united to Christ, and they're to live out their union with Christ in service to Him by following a new moral order. And then finally, we're going to see in chapter 6, though we've seen it a little bit so far, it's that God has drafted... In Christ, each and every individual into a a, a spiritual warfare with Satan and with evil forces in the heavenly places so that we are required to march under our captain, the Lord Jesus, and we're to put on our spiritual armor and we're to wage war against principalities and authorities in the heavenly places. All of that is comprehended in what verses 9 and 10 tell us is this great work of uniting all things in Christ. Well, where are we Today, we come now to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, following, which is a transitional section. Uh, This is a transition that takes place now. Everything up to this point has been about God's salvation of the individual. We've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. We've been adopted. We've been given the seal of the Spirit. And we've been saved as those who were formerly dead in trespasses and sins. We've been made alive together with Christ. And now in chapter 2, verse 11, Paul is going to begin talking to us about these horizontal relationships God has called us into. God has united us to one another in the church, in this new community, such that we are to be one in this new humanity, the church. And that is what we're going to see in our verses today, in chapter 2, verses 11 through 18. Today I'm going to address what I understand to be one of the largest issues in all of the Bible, certainly in all of the New Testament. If I asked you, what do you understand to be really the biggest things uh, that the Lord Jesus and the apostles address in all the New Testament? What are are the big themes? I wonder what you would say. Well, there's any number of things we might address, but very few could rival the importance, the emphasis that Christ himself and the apostles give on our theme this morning. And it is this. Apparently, Jews and Gentiles, disparate Groups with different backgrounds, different cultures, different standing in terms of relationships, they are to be one in the body of Christ. God has reconciled Jew and Gentile in the church, in the new humanity. 
That may not seem very complex to us or very interesting to us. We don't think in terms of Jew and Gentile anymore. But if you know a lot about the Old Testament, you know that in the Old Testament, the Jews were considered God's chosen people. But in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, the nations are brought in. And this is the problem Paul has to confront. How is it that Jews and Gentiles can be in the same church together? You read through the letters of Paul, and this comes up again and again and again and again, and probably never uh, so concisely and powerfully and profoundly as it comes to us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 18. This text is considered by many commentators to be the high watermark of Paul's theology of the church, his understanding of what the church is to be. Well, this morning, I'm going to open up this text just verse by verse. I'm really not going to follow much of an outline. I know we have some who are taking notes, so I'll I'll give you an outline uh, if it's helpful to you. All the outlines I tried to prepare this week seem to more or less obscure the meaning of the text, and I I don't want to do that, but I I have um, three headings for you if they're helpful to you, and I'll just list them. I'm not going to refer to these throughout the message. But first of all, in verses 11 through 13, we're going to see the inclusion of the Gentiles through Christ. The inclusion of the Gentiles through Christ in verses 11 through 13. Then the second major section is verses 14 through 15, where we're going to see the reconciliation of Jews and Gentiles to one another. The reconciliation of Jew and Gentile to one another, again through Christ. And then thirdly and finally, the reconciliation of Jews and Gentiles to God through Christ. So the inclusion of the Gentiles... The reconciliation of Jew and Gentile to one another. And then thirdly, the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile to God. Let's begin now. Eyes on the text this morning. We're just going to work through verses 11 through 18. And then I'm going to share with us three lessons or three applications for us here at Emmanuel Church. And I'll just encourage you, brothers and sisters, I consider the material in this text to be urgently relevant and important to our life together here at Emmanuel Church, here at 407 Peachtree Road, Winston-Salem. It's urgently important in our nation today. It's urgently important across the churches in the world. It's urgently important in our city. And it is definitely important to us here. And so let's lean into the text as we consider these verses. First look with me at verse 11, which reads this. Therefore remember at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Let's Stop there for a second. So Paul apparently is addressing just, addressing just the Gentiles right now. That's hard to say, addressing just the Gentiles. Paul is addressing the Gentiles here. Now remember, we've said that there were probably Jews and Gentiles in the Ephesian church, right? But there's a, a majority of Gentiles in the church, a minority of Jews. Well, now Paul is singling out the Gentiles and has some things he wants to say to them. And he refers to them here, he says, he says you were referred at one time uh, as, as the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. What on earth is he talking about here? Well, you may or may not know this, but in the Old Testament, circumcision uh, was a physical sign. It was the covenant sign of God's chosen people, Israel. It set them apart. It was a sign that God gave to them as a seal of the Abrahamic covenant. He was to be their God. They were to be his people. And he gave them this physical symbol to mark them out from the other nations. And so uh, when some would call the Gentiles the uncircumcision, and some Jews would refer to themselves as the circumcision, this is a term of exclusion. 
It's a, a prejudicial term. It's saying, you are in effect an outsider. We have the covenant sign. You do not. Therefore, you are outside the covenant community. And Paul is wanting to draw their attention to this former exclusion. You Gentiles, you were formerly called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh with hands. Now look on at verse 12. Remember, you Gentiles, that you were at that time separate from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Remember, you, at at that one time, before your conversion, before you were included, and then he lists these five deficiencies uh, with reference to their standing when they were outside of Christ. And these five deficiencies set them apart from the Jews. Let's look at them one after another. He says, remember, you were at that time first separated from Christ. This is the idea that they had no connection with the Jewish Messiah. Listen, these Ephesians, when they were dead in their sins and their trespasses, following the course of the world, uh, uh, under the dominion of Satan and children of wrath, they weren't looking for a coming Messiah. They were totally separated and set apart from this idea of this coming one, this Christ who was to come and to save them from their sins. Second deficiency Paul lists, uh, lists here. He says they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Now that may not hit us as meaning a whole lot, but what it means is they were basically outside the sphere of God's elect people. If you were going to be part of God's people, you needed to be a citizen in Israel. You didn't necessarily have to be born a Jew, but you certainly had to be converted into the Jewish community and accept the sign of circumcision. And he says, before you came to Christ, you were not. You were not a citizen in Israel. You were not part of God's elect people. You were outsiders. You were excluded. But this becomes clearer in the third deficiency he lists. He says they were strangers to the covenants of promise. Strangers to the covenants of promise. Now, just as an aside, I know that we have some members of Emmanuel Church who are particularly interested in biblical theology and covenant theology. Well, this is an important verse for your studies in that area. It's important for all of us to understand, though. What does Paul mean when he says, you Gentiles, you who are formerly uh, the uncircumcision, called that by those who were the circumcision, you are strangers to the covenants of promise. What's he talking about? Well, God in the Old Testament gave to his people Israel a series of covenants, covenants of promise, that all in essence, or most of them, contain this promise of a coming one. So, for example, you have uh, the covenant made with Abraham. And there's this promise that this seed is going to come. The seed of Abraham will come, and he will be a blessing to all the nations. This idea that the nations will be included in, and through him, the nations of the world will be blessed. That's the covenant of promise. Or you could think of the covenant that God made with David in 2 Samuel 7. Of this coming seed of David, who will be greater than David, who will reign on his throne forever, and he will exact justice and rule over all the peoples, and he will be Lord forever. His kingdom will be without end. I was talking about the same person. It's a a different um, iteration of the promise, but the same promise is in view. There's this coming one. And what Paul is saying is, you Gentiles had no idea about this stuff. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. God didn't seal his covenant with you. It was with Israel. And at that time, before you were included, you were apart from Christ. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. You were strangers to the commonwealth of Israel. And this leads to the fourth and fifth deficiencies. He says they were fourthly without hope and fifthly without God in the world. 
the Gentiles, apart from Christ, every man and woman apart from Christ is without hope and without God in the world. It's hard to think of a more tragic description of the state of mankind outside of Christ. Well, these Gentiles had no hope of salvation. They had no hope of approaching God. They were without God in the world. Brothers and sisters, this is true for every man and woman who is a stranger to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Presently, those who have not heard the gospel are without hope and without God in the world. And some of you can remember what it was like to be 21 years old and to be without hope and without God in the world. And then to know Christ breaking in in power and saving you from your sins. Well, this is the description of the Gentiles. They were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, and they had no hope and were without God in the world. Now verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. But now. Where have we seen those words before? Ephesians 2, right? Ephesians 2, 4. Men are dead in their trespasses and sins under the dominion of Satan, following the course of this world, children of wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. He breaks in. It's a a, a verse signaling decisive action on behalf of God. Well, in chapter 2, verse 4, God is the the actor, God the Father, and he's breaking in. Here, in chapter 2, verse 13, it's Christ who's breaking in. But now... Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. These Gentiles who were without hope and without God in the world, who were far off in the Lord Jesus, have now been brought near. They've been included. And notice the text says they have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. Whenever you see that phrase, by the blood of Christ, or or by his flesh, or by his wounds, or through the cross, it should signal to you that whatever is, is being mentioned in reference to that was definitively accomplished through Christ's blood on the cross. Which means that you can imagine Christ on the cross saying, I, I have to do this if the Gentiles are going to be included. The fact that they're brought in, that they're brought near, how was that accomplished? Specifically by the blood of Christ. It was through his shedding his blood that the Gentiles were brought in, that they were brought near. And I don't think it would be inappropriate to imagine Christ saying that. If I don't do this, if I don't shed my blood, if I don't come in human flesh, and if I don't take the sins of the world upon myself, the Gentiles can't come in. I have to do this if the nations can come in and know the blessing of the covenant with Abraham and the covenant with David, if they can know the gospel. And for most of us here, who I assume would be considered Gentiles, that is non-Jews, I don't think it would be in any way inappropriate for you to imagine Christ on the cross saying, if I don't do this, if I don't shed my blood, you and I could not be brought near. We could not be included if not for the shedding of Christ's blood on the cross. The inclusion of the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the nations, that only happens through the blood of Christ. And it only happens for you, my brother or sister, through the blood of Christ. Let me just ask before we move on to verse 14, turn quickly with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. I want you to see this same idea 
of these Gentiles being included through the work of Christ, I want you to see it in this companion letter, Colossians 1, verses 18 through 22. Colossians chapter 1, follow along as I read verse 18. Speaking of Christ, it says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And listen, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Where have we heard that before? Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. Making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, presumably the Gentiles, who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You who are far off, you who were alienated from God, you've been brought in by the blood of Christ. Now the nations are included in the redemptive purposes of God. Now let's move on in Ephesians chapter 2. Let's look at verse 14. So we've seen now the Gentiles are included, the nations are included. Now let's consider the reconciliation of Jews and Gentiles to one another through Christ. Verse 14. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. I want you to notice here, it was all Gentiles in verses 11 through 13, now the Jews are included. He himself is is our peace, who has made us both, Jews and Gentiles, one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Look at those first words in verse 14. He himself is our peace peace. The name of Christ, so often in the scriptures, associated with peace. What did the angels say when Christ came into the world? Peace, goodwill toward men. What did Jesus say to his disciples? My peace I give to you. What did he say after he rose from the dead and appeared to his disciples? Peace be with you. And now we read here, Christ is himself our peace in the church, uniting the two groups into one. And so we should be asking this question, how is it, Paul's asking it, how is it that Jews and Gentiles can be in the same church together? They hate each other. Uh, The derogatory things Jews have said about Gentiles, the ways in which Gentiles have despised the Jews, the hostility that exists between these two groups, how on earth is it that these two groups can coexist in the church? Well, it's not because of a renewed attempt at diplomacy between the two groups. It's not going to be by a renewed commitment to play nicey-nice with one another and to mind our manners. It comes through Christ himself who is our peace. So the origin, the source of the peace that exists between Jew and Gentile in the church and every disparate group who is joined together in the body of Christ is through the peace that Christ provides. The origin, the source is supernatural. How can Jews and Gentiles, groups who formerly hated each other, one who was far, one who was near, now they're brought together in one body? How's that possible? Well, it's only through, listen, it's only through Christ himself who is our peace. And what has Christ done? He has made us both one. Jews and Gentiles are not now just two groups who coexist in the same room. Paul understands them through Christ to be the same thing. They are one. 
no longer plural. Now they're one in Christ. This is what Christ has accomplished. And how did he accomplish it? Look again at verse 14. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Apparently there was a barrier that existed between Jews and Gentiles. There was a barrier that kept the Gentiles out. And whatever that barrier is, Christ has broken it down decisively. He has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Well, some commentators think this could be a reference to uh, the, the temple structure in which there was a wall that divided the inner court from the outer court. And under no circumstances were Gentiles able to come from the outer court to the inner court. Only Jews were allowed in there. And some commentators see an allusion to that. Uh, we can think of the curtain that was torn in two at the death of Christ. Whatever it is, we're to understand that Christ has decisively broken it down. The alienation... The hostility, the division that existed between Jew and Gentile is broken down in Christ's flesh. He is, in the death of Christ, brought death to hostility in the church, in the new humanity. And notice again, we could gloss over these words, but what does he say? Verse 14, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 13, it was by his blood. Here now it's through his flesh. And I really do believe it would be legitimate, legitimate for us to see in the death of Christ as his body is being broken, as his blood is being shed, as his bones are being shattered, we should see the dividing wall of hostility that existed between Jews and Gentiles being shattered as well. In the body of Christ, in his flesh, he put to death division and hostility. And so in answer to the question, should there be division in the church? Should there be hostility in the church? The answer is as simple as this. Was Christ crucified? Was his body broken? Well, then how can there be division and hostility in the church? His body was broken, and therefore the dividing wall was broken. So of course not. If Christ died, there cannot be division in the body of Christ. But now please move on with me quickly to verse 15. Let's read, let's read verse 15 in its context. So read verse 14 again. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. That phrase, at the beginning of verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. How is it? That Christ broke down this dividing wall of hostility. He abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. We need to get our scalpels out at this point and handle with care. What do we understand this expression to mean? That Christ, in some sense, abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Someone says, well, it's quite simple. Christ abolished the law. As Lee Corso from College Game Day says, not so fast. <laughs> The rest of the scriptures will require us to handle this phrase with a great deal more care. Because what does Matthew 5, verse 17 and following say? I did not come to destroy the law or the prophets. I came to fulfill not one jot, not one yoda will pass away from all the law until all is accomplished. What does the Apostle Paul say in Romans 7? I say that the law is holy and the commandment holy, just, and good. I delight to do the law of God according to my inward man. 
What does Jesus Christ, our Lord, say? If you love me, keep my commandments, John 14. 1 John chapter 5, and this is love, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome to us. So it won't be uh, the easy way out of just saying, well, there's no law anymore. Uh, we, We no longer have to obey the Ten Commandments. We no longer have to abide by the law of Christ. No, that will not do. But what does Paul mean? He says that Christ, in some sense, has abolish the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And we're to understand apparently this is what divided Jew from Gentile. So let me ask you, what divided Jew from Gentile in the Old Testament? It wasn't the command not to commit adultery. It wasn't the command to honor God. It wasn't the command not to steal or lie or murder. What divided them? Well, things like circumcision, for example, uh, things that the Jews were required not to touch and not to eat, particular food regulations, particular clothes they were supposed to wear at certain times, particular ceremonies they were to observe, particular days they were supposed to observe. All these uh, strict mosaic prescriptions were what set Jews apart from the Gentiles. So what is Christ abolishing? I believe that Christ in his flesh is abolishing these, these laws and these ordinances their, their mosaic prescriptions, these detailed civil and ceremonial laws that the Jews were supposed to keep that were only ever supposed to be temporary until Christ came. Christ has now abolished those laws. He's not abolished the Ten Commandments. He's not abolished the moral law, which is a reflection of the character of God, which is unchanging throughout time. He's abolishing these strict prescriptions. What Christ abolished in his flesh is Jewish particularism. It's those, those strict prescriptions of circumcision and of dates and events and clothes and dietary rules that the Jews were supposed to observe. And Brad, I'm going to ask now that you uh, make your move and bring some new chairs into our assembly, brother. Uh, eyes on me, congregation. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. What is it that Christ has abolished in his flesh? It's in the keeping of these ordinances these particular Jewish prescriptions that set the Jewish people apart. And Christ would understand in his flesh, through his cross, by his blood, has abolished those things. They're put to death in the death of Christ. And so it can be said that Christ has abolished the law of commandments, expressed in ordinances. Why? So that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace. I want you to see a bit of a nuance here that I think is really important. If we just gloss over these verses, we could miss this. But I want you to notice that Christ is not just bringing the two groups together. He's not just bringing Jew and Gentile. Well, now you're in the same body. You Jews and whatever was true of you, now you're in with the Gentiles with whatever was true of you. You Jews now have to tolerate the Gentiles. You Gentiles are now welcomed into the Jewish party. That's not what he's saying. Apparently, he's taken these two old groups and he's made something completely new out of them. There's a new humanity. Whatever was true of you Jews before, that's done. Now you're in Christ, a new creation. You are in the church. Whatever was true of you Gentiles before, alienated strangers to the promise, no more. You're created new in Christ and thus are part of this new humanity, this new community. He takes those two old disparate groups and he brings them together and creates something completely new. So that no one can plead privilege. No one is a VIP. Uh, No one is allowed to argue for a special place. 
You are all something completely new that hitherto you were not. He has taken the two groups and He's made them new in Christ. Now let's move on to verse 16. We've seen the inclusion of the Gentiles, verses 11 through 13. We've seen how God has reconciled Jew and Gentile to one another. And now verse 16, we begin to see how God has reconciled both groups to God through Christ. Verse 16, And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. There is in the church horizontal reconciliation. I'm reconciled to individuals from different backgrounds, cultures, ethnicities, socioeconomic statuses, okay? I'm reconciled to them horizontally, but also I'm reconciled vertically to God. Might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And notice again that this work of reconciliation is accomplished through the cross. It's accomplished by His blood. It was accomplished in his flesh. It's accomplished through the cross. So that in the cross, we should understand that something that Christ was doing was reconciling Jew and Gentile to God. That was being accomplished on the cross. What was Jesus doing? He wasn't just making the way to God hypothetically possible. He was securing for his people union with Christ and reconciliation to God and the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile to one another. There at the cross... Christ definitively killed the hostility. Now it's interesting, in verse 14, the hostility, or maybe it's verse 13, the hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile, that's destroyed. But in verse 16, the hostility is not between Jew and Gentile. The hostility is between God and man. Mm-hmm. And so what do we see? In the death of Christ is the end of all hostility. Hostility between God and man. Hostility between brothers and sisters in the church. Christ in his flesh, by his blood, through his cross, put division and hostility to death. So there could be no division, no hostility, no alienation in Christ's body. Not between disparate groups who have now been made one in Christ and not between God and man. Christ has put to death the hostility. He has shattered the dividing wall. And I love this. We see it in verse 17 now. And he came, probably through the publishing of the gospel, I think, but he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. There it is again. He himself who is our peace, who puts an end to all hostility and all division. He came and preached peace to you who were far off. You Gentiles who were without hope and without God in the world, he preached peace to you. And you Jews who were so close to it, been given the covenants of promise, so close to the kingdom, he came and preached peace to you as well. Well, this is not Paul's main point, but I, I couldn't help but think of this this week. I grew up in a Christian home, was always under the preaching of the gospel, and my wife did not. She was in an area of the country where she, she was maybe 13 years old, 12 or 13 years old, before she ever heard the gospel. And I thought of this. Christ came and preached peace to her. She was, in a sense, far off. And he came and preached peace to me. I was near under the preaching of the gospel. We both needed to have peace preached to us. Those who are privileged, they need the peace that comes only through Christ. Those who are far off, they need peace preached to them as well. There are people in the bush of Africa who need peace preached to them. And there are people in middle-class suburbia in Winston-Salem who need peace preached to them. Well, Paul says to these Ephesians that Christ came. 
And he preached peace to the Gentiles who were far off. He preached peace to the Jews who were near. He preached peace to both groups. And then verse 18, he sort of sums this up. For through him, we both, Jews and Gentiles, now created new in one body. Through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Jews do not have unique access to God. There are no VIPs in the church. We all have access now through one spirit. Whatever was true of us in the past, whatever privileges we might have had, whatever sense of of privilege we feel, the ground is leveled because we can all approach God through one spirit. The ground of our unity is established through the one spirit through whom we come to God. I want you to recognize this is not just an upgrade for the Gentiles. Hey, now you're in on the party. You get to come through one spirit. This is an upgrade for the Jews. Because before, how did they have to come to God? Through a complex and at times arduous ceremonial sacrificial system. And and there are all these particular rules and ordinances they had to keep. But now they can come through the one spirit. It's like what Jesus said to the woman at the well, right? She's saying, well, where, where should we worship? This mountain or that mountain? Who's right? The Samaritans or the Jews? And he says, Madam, neither in this mountain nor in that mountain will you worship God. I'm paraphrasing. But the true worshipers will worship God in spirit and truth. They will worship through the one spirit. He is their access to God. Today, already, Chinese Christians have gathered. Italian Christians have gathered. English Christians have gathered. Russian Christians have gathered. We are gathering. We all come to God through one spirit. Well, in closing now, in these final few minutes, I want to give to us three lessons for Emmanuel Church that we need to learn from this text. I'm not going to say everything that we need to learn because there's lots. Uh, But thanks be to God, Ephesians 2.11 through chapter 4 and verse 16 is going to play out these themes a great deal. So we're going to be talking about this for at least another couple months, okay? But I want for us this morning to consider three important lessons. First of all, community... In the Christian life is not optional. Community in the Christian life is not optional. Now, why on earth do I say that? Uh, For a lot of universities, this is freshman week. Freshman orientation. I imagine uh, Jordan Clark had his freshman orientation up at NC State. Uh, In a little bit, Marcus, a year from now, you'll have orientation wherever it is that you go. They're having freshman orientation. And what happens at freshman orientation? Well, you have counselors and whoever, volunteers, student body people who take the freshmen and they show them where they're to go and where everything is and orient them to the campus. And so they say, um, okay, freshmen, come over here. And all the freshmen herd together. And they say, okay, this is your dorm. This is where you'll be living. It's your room. Don't forget it. Here's the number. Here's the building. And if you're not paying attention, you're going to be homeless. You have to pay attention to that bit of information. It's important, right? And then they say, they take you over to the cafeteria, and they say, okay, this is where you're going to eat. And if you forget that little bit of information, you're going to go hungry. Okay? You need to remember where the cafeteria is. Okay? And then they take you to where you're going to have your classes. And they say, if you forget this, you're not going to be here very long. You've got to go to class. And uh, it's utterly vital if you don't want to drop out of this institution. We don't really do this for new converts, but we really should do something like freshman orientation for freshman Christians. And if we did freshman orientation for every new convert, this would be one of those vital pieces of information I think we should share. Community in the body of Christ is not optional. Why? Well, because Paul didn't stop in Ephesians 2.10. 
Reconciliation is not only with God. Christ brings us into a new community. Christ's design on the cross was to create a new people, a new humanity, the church. And you are to be included in it. One of the reasons Christ shed his blood is so that you could get along with people who are nothing like you. That have only in common the peace that comes through Christ. That's the only reason you could be included into this body. And Paul expects that every Christian will be living out their union with Christ in the context of community, in the context of relationships in the body of Christ. You freshman Christians, what you need to know is that you need Christians in your life. Full stop. You need the body of Christ. And listen to me. Uh, The idea of a Christian who floats around like this lone maverick who isn't part of a church, isn't an intentional life-on-life relationship with other people, who takes this cavalier attitude that it's just me and my Bible and I'm doing my thing. Listen, Paul would not even recognize you. If I could bring Paul back this moment, hey, this is my friend Bob. Yeah, Bob has no connection to the church, but he'd have no clue what I'm talking about. No category for that. What are you talking about, Alex? Bob's not part of the church. Does he know why Christ died? He died to create a new man where plural people groups come together and worship God. He died to create a new community. And if this person's a child of God, if he's united to Christ, surely he's united to his body, the church. You've got to be kidding me. I don't think I'm exaggerating Paul's attitude. We are saved to be in community with one another. And listen, I don't know where you are, whatever your convictions have been in the past. I want to press this text on you. You are made new in Christ to live in community. And it's not optional, according to Paul. And apparently the community in which we live, the oneness that we we reflect through what Christ has done, is supposed to be a testimony to the world. So that preachers and evangelists can point to the church and say, hey, whatever mess, whatever garbage, whatever chaos is going on out there in the church, there's one new man united through Christ who is our peace. In the church, it's not a matter of getting together at a coffee shop and and developing a new plan for how we're going to get along together. It's in the supernatural work of Christ in our hearts. And Paul expects us to live that out. Community in the Christian life is not optional. But a second lesson for us, and this is one that I feel with a greater sense of urgency. Second lesson from Ephesians 2, 11 through 18. There is no place, there is no place for division in the church. There is no place for division in the church. Two groups have been made one in Christ. Christ in his flesh has abolished the dividing wall of hostility. He put it to death in his flesh on the cross So that one of the things Christ achieved through his death on the cross is a united body of people. And there is to be no division. There is to be no hostility. There is to be no alienation in the body of Christ. Unity, peace, harmony. There are few things that are more close to the heart of Christ than those. In Christ's body, the church, there is to be this reflection of unity and peace. Because he himself is our peace. When you find yourself in the church working for unity, working for love, working for harmony, working for repaired relationships, you are working for something that is close to the heart of Christ. 
If you find yourself contributing to division, contributing to bitterness, contributing to slander, contributing to hostility, you are threatening one of those things for which Christ died. When you contribute to division in the body of Christ, you are invalidating the work of Christ on the cross. He came and sought to purchase by his blood, through what he did on the cross, a united body. And when we work to divide the church, we are denying to Christ the inheritance for which he died. A united body marked by love and unity and harmony. We are to work, brothers and sisters, to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Ephesians 4, verses 2 through 3. Now, in the Ephesian context, the big division was Jew and Gentile. What are the divisions in our day? There's a big one. How about racial or ethnic division? It's just a massive issue across the face of our nation. It's a massive issue in the church. It's a massive issue in Winston-Salem. And I pray it never becomes a massive issue here. The idea that one race is superior to another, or one race is inferior to another, or that we should have white churches and black churches and Asian churches and Hispanic churches. Listen, Christ took that kind of garbage and he killed it in his flesh on the tree. He wants a united body. He wants the church on earth to reflect the church in heaven which is marked by people around the throne who sing praises to the risen Lamb from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And so in one united body, the church, groups that that couldn't seem to get along together outside the church, well, if Christ is their peace and they're brought into this new community, they're made perfectly one. And they're to labor for unity. They're to labor for peace. They're to labor for harmony. But it doesn't stop at racism or ethnicism. How about socioeconomic division? You've got churches where there are just really highly educated, wealthy people. And you've got churches where there are basically just poor people. Okay? There should be none of that in the church of Jesus Christ. The, the, the high-rolling businessman with the banging 401k should be able to hang out with uh, the grease monkey guy who's barely uh, scraping by. Why? Because their unity is not in the cars they drive. Their unity is not in what technology they can afford. Their unity is not the name brand on their shirt. Their unity is in Christ who is our peace. Rich and poor. How about old and young? How many churches do you see? Well, we're just really trying to reach the millennials. 20s and 30-somethings. Well, we're kind of a retiree kind of church. Christ died to take two groups and to make them one. There can be no divide in terms of age. Paul envisioned a community in which old and young are worshiping God together and they're drawing on the various gifts and, and, and blessings that God has given to each group. So in the church, you can have a 16-year-old young man who, man, he's tight and close friends with the 56-year-old guy. They go out, they get coffee, and they talk about the Lord, and it's a glorious thing. Why? People look at this. Why on earth would this young, hip, cool guy want to hang out with this old, stodgy old man? Okay. Well, why? No offense to those who are 56. <laughs> you see what I did there? Someone looks at this, and there's, here's the 16-year-old. Man, you know, whatever 16-year-olds are into, and here's this 56-year-old guy, and they're getting a meal together. And they're talking about the church, and they're talking about Christ. How is that possible? The world looks at that and says, how is that possible? Because Christ is our peace. Because Christ unites the two into one body. But the bigger threat here, I think, for us 
Emmanuel Church, if you'll allow me to be pastoral for a moment, is on the relational level. Christ will not tolerate division in his church. Christ died so that division would be destroyed, so that hostility would be kicked out of the church. But so often, relationally, we can contribute to division in the body of Christ. It happens to be in the type of person who's easily offended. It happens to be in the type of person that holds a grudge, who allows bitterness to, to fester in your soul, speak evil of others. How often have you either seen this or heard of this? Here's this church, and there's Miss Mabel, and there's Miss Martha, and they haven't spoken in 11 years. They can't even remember why it was that they stopped speaking to each other, but they're not going to be the first one to move. She's got to come to me. Listen, I don't want to be anywhere near Miss Mabel or Miss Martha on the day of judgment. Christ will not tolerate division in his church. Christ died to make us one. I love that imagery, Matthew 18. It talks about going to one another, and if you, it talks about winning your brother, winning your brother. But we need to have that mindset. When there's tension, when there's the introduction of enmity and distance, we need to, I need to win my brother. I need to win my sister. We're to be a united body, and so I can't allow this distance to exist. Christ died to destroy this division. He died to destroy this hostility, and I won't be divided from my brother or my sister. So you can imagine the scenario. You have two couples from our church who are out at dinner. And they're talking to one another, and the subject of elections comes up. And let's just imagine a hypothetical election in the future. Okay? <laughs> and the, politics. So I'm a politics. Who are they going to vote for? And they introduce They say, well, I'm going to vote for this guy. What? I'm vote for him? We, we were going to vote for this lady. What? How could you do that? And they argue. And, and, and they just can't understand. The other person could think that way politically. And it's getting heated. And people are getting uneasy, uncomfortable with each other. You get the sense of, if this continues to go on much longer, words are going to be had and we're not going to be able to speak to each other. And then one of the others says, hang on, hang on. Listen, I, I don't understand the way you think, and you plainly don't understand the way we think on this issue of politics, but I'm not going to destroy our unity in Christ over these buffoons. I'm not going to destroy the peace that Christ has secured for us through his blood over politics. I'm not going to allow myself to do it. You might imagine two sets of parents. They have kids around the same age. They're together after a small group Bible study or something. And the one family, they're one of these families. Man, they let their hair down, kind of loosey-goosey. Kids run all over the place. There's no really strict bedtime because they're up at midnight or 1 o'clock. That's cool. If they wake up at 9, that's fine. And they're just, just kind of loose in that way. And they have others, man. They're so type A. I mean, my kid, if they're not in bed at 7.30, it's going to throw the whole thing off. Man, you do not want to see me if my kids do not get in bed at 7.30. And this is starting to create some problems as these two families relate to one another. And they're, they're talking. And they say, how can you allow your kids to stay up this late? And they're so noisy and, 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 and sloppy. And, you know, our, our kids are, are so on, on point, And you have to teach kids this, you know. They really have to get into bed on time. The rhythm's so important and all this sort of stuff. And they say, man... You guys are so strict. You're going to crush your kid's spirit. You know, you discipline so much. And you got to just got to chill out a little bit. They're going to rebel against you when you get older. And they're having this discussion over how to best parent their children. And it's starting to get heated. Remember the, the WWJD bracelets? I think in the 80s or something like that. What would Jesus do, right? I think that Christians should consider wearing WWSD bracelets. What would Satan do? What does Satan want you to do in that situation? Divide. Think evil of one another. 
Choose that you can't get along together and just find new friends in the church. Hold a grudge against this person. Harbor bitterness against it. That's what Satan would want you to do. Jeff, say no. Listen, listen, Christ is our peace. I don't understand the way you parent. I'm going to labor to try to understand. We're going to love each other. We're going to work through this. But we're not going to divide over our choices for how to educate our kids. We're not going to divide over our choices for how to exact discipline in the church, in our families. I didn't divide over this because Christ is our peace and that's far more important. You're working in the nursery. Woman comes out to get her children. She's a little flustered. She's a little tired. You don't know the day that she's had. She gets her kids. You've been in there working hard to serve her children. And she didn't say anything to you. Just takes the kids and walks away. And you think, I served her. Kept her kids. I could at least get a thank you. You know how hard I worked in here for you? What would Satan have that woman do? Yes, good. Think the worst of her. Assume bad motives and harbor division and hostility in your heart toward that person. Listen, brothers and sisters, this is deadly serious. It could happen in the hallway out here. In these four walls, in the context of this worship service, we're engaged, we're saying amen, but listen to me, outside those doors, Satan is waiting and he has his armies arrayed against you to destroy the division of the church. But Christ came so that we would be one. There can't be any racial division There can't be socioeconomic division. There can't be ageism in the church. And there cannot be relational and interpersonal conflict that abides for months and months and years and years and introduces division into the church. I need to draw to a close here. There are a number of texts I wanted to read. I'll mention them to you. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. There's one spirit. There's one faith. There's one Lord, one baptism, one Lord who is all in Oh, we're to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. What did Christ pray in John 17 in his high priestly prayer before he went to the cross? I pray that they may be perfectly one. Unity is close to the heart of Christ. Let me just ask in closing that you turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. And we want to read verses 11 through 15 as a summary of what we've seen. This one new man, this new, humani- new humanity, united through what Christ has done. Paul says this, verse 11 of Colossians 3, Here, here, in Emmanuel Church, here in every true church of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Going to divide from your brother or sister, and Christ is in him. Christ is in her. To divide from him or her would be to divide from Christ. Verse 12 Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And here it is again. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. I had a third lesson. I'm just going to mention it to you and won't open it up. But it was that meaningful unity can only be achieved through Christ because he himself is our peace everywhere out there 
unrest, fracture, dislocation, disunity, chaos, hostility, alienation, not so in the church. Because Christ is our peace. And where Christ is, peace must abound. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that Jesus Christ himself is our peace. That he has broken down every wall, including the wall of hostility that divided God and man. The hostility created by our sins. He's broken that down. And he's broken down the hostility between Jew and Gentile. The wall that exists between every man or woman who has some source of division between them. He's broken down human walls of division and separation. And he has purchased for himself one new humanity that is to dwell in unity and peace. Father, please help your church in the world to reflect the oneness for which Christ died. The oneness that is so close to Christ's heart. We pray for us here at Emmanuel that you would give us grace, that you would give us help to preserve the unity that exists in this place and to fan it into flame and to steward it by your grace. May you help every single individual in this church to war against division, to war against hostility, to fight the natural alienation that so easily creeps up in our hearts toward one another. And help us to fight to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. May, Lord, you work so that in this place, for generations to come, love and peace would prevail. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.